hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Here we are, and earnings season is about to kick off with the major banks starting the report on Friday. We'll see announcements out of J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citibank. And right now, analysts are guessing that reported earnings will be about 20% higher than last quarter. And if that's right, it'll be the second consecutive quarter with 20% earnings growth or better in the third straight quarter of double-digit earnings growth. Welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me today. Last week, we took a break. It was the 4th of July. I spent it with family and friends, and we enjoyed a parade and went to the fireworks, and I had a hot dog or two. Well, okay, maybe more than two. But who's counting? It was a holiday. Did you know? that the legal separation of the original 13 colonies from Great Britain actually occurred on July 2nd? I didn't know that. That's when the Second Continental Congress approved a resolution uh, resolution proposed by Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. Surprisingly, it only took two days for Congress to approve the Declaration of Independence, and that's why we celebrated on the 4th of July. Today, We'll catch up on the markets, talk about one of my favorite stocks, and we'll also look at a sector that's been underappreciated for a while now. Stay tuned. You might get an idea that you can use for your portfolio. Remember, you always need to do your own homework. You don't just buy something because you heard it on a podcast or maybe you saw something on TV. No, no, no. You got to make sure it's right for you. And that means You have to read the annual reports. You have to look at the company filings. You have to listen to the conference calls and you have to form your own opinion. Hopefully I can give you at least one idea each week that we're on that you can take away and research for yourself. Let's take a look at the market or as I like to say, let's try and read the tea leaves here. While we were on break last week, The market broke out of its two-week losing streak, and the S&P gained about a percent and a half. You know, this market has been in a tug-of-war, this trading range, and it's been in this range for the last several months. And you have fears of a trade war on one side and the strengthening of the U.S. economy on the other. And I might add, the economy just seems to be getting stronger and stronger. Yes, Eventually, this will present its own set of problems, but not right now. Last Friday, we had a jobs report, and it showed that non-farm payrolls were increasing faster than expected. And the Labor Department reported that the workforce expanded by more than 600,000 people. And that helped keep wage inflation in check. Keeping inflation in check is a good thing. As I mentioned before, unemployment is at a 48-year low. All in all, the data just keeps getting better and better. GDP is expected to be north of 3% this quarter. Heck, according to the Atlanta Fed data, GDP is growing better than 4.5%. Now, I don't think this is going to end up being right, but it does show you that things are going pretty good. What I think that what all that means is that any drawdown we get this summer 
will likely be reversed by the end of the year. I continue to think that we end up higher uh, at the end of the year than when we started. One thing that's out there that I've heard a lot of people talking about is the yield curve. It's worrying some folks. If you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, what they're looking at is the difference between interest rates in the short term versus interest rates in the long term. When short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, people say the yield curve is inverted. And when that happens, it's been a reasonable predictor of, of a recession coming down the pike. Think about it like this. Say you're a bank. Your business is to gather deposits through checkings and savings. Maybe you sell some CDs. And when you do that, you have to pay some interest to those folks so they keep their money with you. So say you pay 1% on a one-year CD that you sell. Now, you take that money in and you lend it back out, eh, say through a 30-year mortgage, and you get 4% on that mortgage. So you're making the difference between what it cost you, the 1% on the CD, and what you're making, the 4% on the mortgage. So that's a pretty good business. You're earning 3%. Now, think about rates being inverted. Short-term rates have gone up. Now you have to pay 4% on your CDs, but long rates have stayed the same or gone down. And you can only charge maybe 3% on your mortgages. Well, I think you can see how your business might fall apart at that point. And that's why people are concerned about the yield curve inverting. What investors typically look at is the difference between the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury. And right now, the difference is only about 30 basis points. So it's pretty darn narrow. Now, I'm not going to worry too much about this right now because I think we're going through a period of normalization. I don't like to say this time is different, but I think it is to a degree. This isn't a period like we've historically had. So I'm not going to worry about it right now. From a technical perspective, the indicators argue for a continuation of this trading range that we've been in since February. You've seen real improvement in the contrarian indicators. And I'm talking about the investor sentiment surveys like AAII and, and the investor intelligence numbers, which now show less optimism than just a couple of weeks ago. I will say, again, from a technical perspective, and my partner Rob pointed this out when he was writing our quarterly newsletter, there is one thing that we need to watch, and that's the market breath. Since the lows in February, the market has become dependent on the technology sector for the overall performance. And within the tech sector, a small percentage of stocks have been mostly responsible for the gains this year. It's a very narrow market. The majority of S&P sectors are either down or flat for the year. If you've been around long enough, you know that when the market moves higher, it's usually on the back of the financial stocks. And they haven't been pulling their load in a while now. I've talked about how I like the consumer finance stocks last week. So you may want to go back and give a listen to that show. So let me sum this up for you. The economy's doing great. And we don't have to worry about the bad things just yet. They'll eventually come, but not right now. I think the market continues to trade in this range that we've been in. 
And the one thing that changes my mind or the one thing that would change my mind is that if we see a couple of days of really strong upside buying momentum, and I'm talking about nine buyers to every one seller, two days of that, and it'll convince me we're headed higher. Regardless of what we think the market might do, it's just a guess. We'll buy businesses when we're given the opportunity. I mean, good businesses at good prices. If you do that, then over the long run, you should do just fine. Be value oriented. I think there are two key things that will play a long-term role in your success. One is being value oriented. I talk about this all the time. It's something we do every day in life and it's something we should do when we're investing. I won't beat on it today, but I think it's an absolute must. And number two, to be really successful long-term, I think you need to have a well-thought-out plan. And I'm talking about a financial plan. This is the foundation. Once you found out where you are and where you want to be, the plan is going to give you a good idea of what you need to do to get there. How much you should be saving for retirement, how much you should be putting away for the kids' schooling. It's going to give you an idea of how much risk you need to take. If you don't need to take a lot of risk, then why would you? Listen, it's time for us to step away and take a break. When we come back, I'll talk about one of my favorite stocks right now. And we'll also talk about an area of the market that I think has been underappreciated for a while in a place where you may want to start looking for bargains. This is Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing, and we are back in just a moment. You've worked hard. You've saved and invested. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. Well, thank you and welcome back to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman. So glad you could join me today. If you have a question for the show, email us at podcast at xmlfg.com. Once again, it's podcast at xmlfg.com. Let's get right to it. One of my favorite stocks now is Federal Express, symbol FDX. Now, I know that you know who they are, but let me break it down a little bit for you. Basically, FedEx has four operating segments. One is their express business. That's the biggest one. It accounts for about 45% of their total revenues. And that's what you think about when you think overnight. You have this package that you want to get to the other side of the country or the other side of the world for that matter. They stick it on a plane and off it goes. Now, the express business isn't the most profitable business they have. And that makes sense when you think about it. FedEx is basically the largest cargo airline in the world. So you have all these planes, nearly 700 of them. And you have all that cost that goes along with it in maintaining and servicing them, not to mention the fuel costs. So 
the express business is 45% of revenues or 57% of revenues if you include their European business, TNT. And during the last quarter, they had operating margins of 11.5%, which means they earned 11.5 cents on every dollar that they sold. Compare that to the second largest business they have. That's the ground business. You know, stick it on the truck, drive it around town and drop it off. That's the ground business. Ground business is about 30% of revenues. Incidentally, revenues at the ground business grew by 12% last quarter. And revenues at the express part of the business, they grew at 9%. So they're growing. The ground business, it's much more profitable because of less overhead. So they have better margins, 17% margins. FedEx also operates two smaller divisions, smaller, but not small. The freight division, those are the the bigger items. Freight accounts for about 11% of FedEx's total revenues. This part of the business grew at 16% last quarter, 16%. And they delivered better than 9% margins. And then they have a service business, which is really only about 2% of revenues. So we're not going to really talk about that side of things because we'll just muck things up a bit. When we put all these divisions together, what you end up with is a company that grew its top line revenue by 10% last quarter, mainly through volume growth and increased pricing. And they had operating margins of 11.5%. They earned 11.5 cents on every dollar in revenue. A lot of people like to talk about the big disruptor, the, the big disruptor that is Amazon and how they're coming in and starting their own delivery business and how that's going to crush people like FedEx and UPS and all this scary stuff. But let's step back for a minute and look at this. Amazon accounts for about 3% of Federal Express's revenue, 3%. Now, no one likes to lose 3% of their business, but I would hardly say that it's anywhere near crippling to to FedEx. Now, with UPS, it's about 10% of the business. So that would be a little bit more upsetting if I were to own UPS. That's if Amazon is successful in building out the infrastructure. And I wouldn't bet against them, but I think it would be way down the road uh, before they get all this stuff done. It's just not that easy to start a shipping business that has scale. I think back about 10 years ago when DHL came in to compete and they've invested a tremendous amount of capital and they still ended up losing over a billion dollars in 2007. And that's when they ended up throwing in the towel and saying, now forget this, we can't make money doing this. Again, I'm not saying it's impossible, But what I am saying is that it would be very difficult and it would take a lot of time. And if they diverted every package to their own business, again, it's only about 3%. So what's the opportunity here? The stock has dropped from about $265 down to about $235 where it's trading now. And it's paying a little bit of a dividend, nothing to, to write home about. So you've had this pullback in the stock to where it's trading at about 15 times this calendar year earnings and 13 times next year's calendar earnings. 
this is about as cheap as the stock has gotten over the last 15 years. Of course, that doesn't mean it can't get cheaper. I own it, by the way. But I think this is a very good company. They have a great balance sheet. It's relatively predictable in that if the economy is uh, the economy is doing well, then they should do well. And they're generating a decent amount of cash flow. And you know I like cash. I'm a buyer here at 235, but you need to do your own research and make sure it's appropriate for you. I've already talked about that. So let's move on. Let's talk about a sector that's been somewhat underappreciated here. And I'm talking about the biotechs and the pharmas for that matter. I consider the biotechs a step up on the risk ladder. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't just own a biotech by itself. Now, I'm, I'm too chicken for that. I would much rather have my best-in-class drug stock, which I think is J&J, and then look to own a smaller position in one of the biotechs or maybe even a basket of the biotechs. Actually, as I said, I think the drug stocks, the big farmers are going to do well here too. We've been buying one biotech over the last month or so, and we won't talk about that today. We have to have something for our clients, right? I like them for a number of reasons, but I'm going to give you three. The first reason is people were hesitant on the group because the current administration ran on a certain platform. And one of the things on the platform was reforming healthcare. So people were afraid. Well, we finally have a bit, a little bit of clarity. Well, we don't have a bill drafted and we're waiting on more details it seems a lot better than what people were expecting. Ultimately, I think this allows companies to increase branded drug prices, at least at the rate of inflation. The second reason is you're seeing pharma's retail sales expanding nicely and overall industry shipments are rising at a pretty healthy clip. And at the same time, inventories are whittled down which means they have a favorable pricing uh, backdrop. Classic more demand than supply type thing going on here. And lastly, sentiment. It's kind of like the first reason, but it's actually different. The, The first reason was about political and regulatory, about the political and regulatory environment. This reason is about sentiment and valuation. It's, it seems to me, that we've hit a level that seems pretty extreme. I don't think I've ever seen the analysts as negative on the sector as they are now. And with valuations about as good as you get, you look, the forward PE, uh, the forward PE ratio is trading way below par in the historical mean. I think that you have to take a look at it. I'd look at owning my core type drug stock, you know, the the companies like J&J, and then adding that biotech or maybe a basket of the biotechs. You really need to do your homework here. Well, we've run out of time. We'll be back next Wednesday. Until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. This has been Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, 
They're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.